Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Derek Pernasiglio Show. I'm Derek Pernasiglio, and we have Lauren Rainier joining us in the studio. Lauren Rainier, longtime, uh, I guess you could say, journeyman in the sport, uh, a talent scout, spotter. You, you've done everything. I mean, what haven't you done in this sport? Well, I'm not very mechanical, so I've never been a crew chief or a driver. Um, but I've always been around the sport from really from the ownership aspect because both my grandfather and father were uh, cup owners at some point. Mm-hmm. So that was really my upbringing was, uh, first of all, the, 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 is just a love and passion for the sport. You know, you know it all starts there. Mm-hmm. Is, all of us have that, is, is the passion and love for the sport. Uh, then second of all, it's really, you know, your kind of perspective. And mine is, was from the ownership side of it and making deals and, you know, putting teams together, putting drivers with teams and just everything that that involved. Now, for the people that are just tuning in and just listening, explain to the viewers and the listeners who your father and grandfather were because they have been pioneers in this sport. Right, so my grandfather got involved in NASCAR in the early 50s. Um, Actually, 2022 will be the actual 70th year that my family's been involved in NASCAR. Actually, if you look in uh, like racing reference at the 1952 Southern 500, my grandfather owned the car that finished second. A guy by the name of Johnny Patterson drove the car. Fonny Flock actually won the race and uh, and they actually finished second. They actually come back in 1954 and finished fourth in the Southern 500. Same driver, Johnny Patterson. So my family had had been involved in racing on and off all the way through the 50s, 60s, and even up into the 70s. Um, uh, my my grandfather was involved in pipelining, construction, and coal, and uh, in in eastern Kentucky. And um, my dad worked with him. And then my my grandfather passed away in the early seventies, I think nineteen seventy two. And my dad took over the coal company, and then uh, kind of had a big coal boom in the seventies. Made some money. He ended up selling his coal company, and that's when he formed what became uh, the twenty eight car that everybody Rainier Racing, Rainier Racing mm-hmm. and everybody knew as um um you know it, it was Rainier racing and then it became robert yates racing and uh, you know the whole 28 thing it actually started out the first year uh, in 1978 as the 54 car with lenny pond mm-hmm. and he got our first win at talladega but uh so both my grandfather and father were were um my, i would say my grandfather was a prominent owner but my dad was certainly a prominent owner of his era being mm-hmm. in the late 70s all through the 80s uh he would have been a you know, I would say a Rick Hendrick, Joe Gibbs kind of guy at that time. And you said they had had factory back, backing from Chrysler, right? What they did in the six, my grandfather did actually had some factory support from Chrysler in the 60s. Uh, they ran Bobby Watson and uh, Andy Hampton and were very successful in the ARCA series. Um, and um, a lot of wins, probably nearly 30 wins in ARCA at, at that time. And ARCA, you know, was pretty good level of racing through the, you know through the it midwest was, it was big back then because it was through the midwest it was you know it was uh it wasn't nascar but it was you know it had a a solid following and a good group of uh competitors is that more when it was more regional where the cup series was more southeastern based sport and then you had usac and arca in the midwest and then the west coast had winston west or that would be about right yeah it was more you know the lo- the, the the arca series would come to the local short tracks and run there and then they obviously venture off to some of the bigger racetracks they would run daytona and talladega and 
uh, different um, different speedways. They'd come to Charlotte, and but you know you you could see an ARCA race at a local dirt track. I mean, they they ran everywhere, right? You know, what I mean, mm-hmm. it was just that's what they did, and it was a solid show. You know, you had Iggy Katona and Raymond Stott, guys like that. I mean, just true Benny Parsons. I mean, you know, solid competitors. And uh, my grandfather's team was one of those teams. You know, they were they were a solid race team back in that era. And not far off of cup cars, because you were telling me that you guys ran the ARCA race and the Daytona 500. Yeah, at, 1969, at Andy Hampton ran, I think he finished third in the ARCA race at Daytona, mm-hmm. took the exact same car and engine, and finished, finished ninth in the Daytona 500 the next week. Wow. So it's, it's just really unbelievable to think about it. But that was the era. You know, and, and at the time too, that was you know the test of endurance for guys going 500 miles. And he did what? A, what was it? A 300 miler in the Arco? Uh, or 200, I think. Two or 300, yeah. Yeah, and then another 500. Exactly. On that, so 700 miles on that mm-hmm. engine. It's Absolutely, just, isn't that amazing? Oh my God! Now yeah. was uh, uh, Robert Yates building those motors? No, no, at that no. Time? Robert Yates was not even. You know, they, I, I don't honestly that that stuff probably come from uh, Ray Nichols. You okay. know, Ray Nichols up in Ohio. Yeah, this was long before my dad. Or you know, my grandfather wasn't. You know, he passed away long before my dad put the uh, the twenty eight team together. So that's when Waddell Wilson and Robert Yates came. You know, in, okay. in that era. Gotcha. Yeah. Skipping around a little bit though, mm-hmm. but now uh, you know I see you at the track mm-hmm. all, all the time because you are a, a development you or you develop guys. I, I like to call you a, a talent scout, really, because there's a lot of times where people have said, you know, what is it that Lauren does? So, mm-hmm. like, let's officially get, like, your job title of what it is and what you do. Well, it's a little bit abstract. I mean, I think the the, the thing is what I do is not really tangible because you can't really feel it or touch it because it's more about connecting people is really what it is. It's uh, I feel like I have a very good feel for uh, evaluating talent, where talent is, where talent needs to go, and then what and where they need to be and who they need to be with, that type of thing. So, you know, to say what I do, it's, 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 it's not that easy because it's more of a lifetime of this. You know, it's a lifetime of racing mm-hmm. and uh, a lifetime of contacts and a lifetime of knowledge, of and just an, understanding. And an education you can't buy. You can't buy it, right? No, I mean, my, my, my father put me in position to learn from the absolute best. I mean, I learned more from Waddell Wilson probably than anybody that I was ever around. You know, just the just, just the, the understanding of racing and how it works. I learned uh, when I got to be around Bobby Allison when I was 15 years old, I got to be around a complete driver, a driver that could win at Riverside, North Wilkesboro, Daytona, Talladega, Charlotte, Darlington, this guy could win anywhere, and I and I realized what that looked like and how that was, and that made a big impression on me at a young age. How do you find that that combination where you see like which this team would be good with this driver and vice versa? You know, it's it, it's it's hard to you know there's there's no formula. It's a feel. Mm-hmm. You know, I just I feel like I I get to know the um the the drivers the young drivers and the parents and then i get to know the teams really well the owners of the teams and the guys that do the work and and i just feel like you know this 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 group would be a good fit with this group mm-hmm. and that's kind of how i do it it's not like it's there's no formula there's no you know way to figure it out it's just me 
going off what I feel. And gotcha. that's, that's really how it works. It's not so much I'm looking for the team, I'm looking for the driver. I mean, I've, I have relationships with the teams. Right. But, like, if I'm – it's more about does this driver fit with this team? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So, what, so their personality, their attitude, or their Just, approach? Yeah, all of that. How hard they're going to work? All of it. I yeah. mean, I can't really – Can you see – can you, like, look at a, a young driver now and go, he's good, but he's not going to put in the work or the time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you can kind of see that. You can kind of get it a little bit from the family. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of tell where they are, how they've been raised, and kind of their work ethic and, you know, all that kind of thing. You know, so, yeah, I mean, it's really hard. It's very abstract. Mm-hmm. It's very abstract, but it's my thing. I got you. You understand what I'm saying? It's just, it's my thing. It's my field. It'd be, it would be very hard to teach somebody this because they don't have all the experiences that i've had right you've you've got to you've got to age and and mm-hmm. you know, not, not that's not taking you know that's not a knock that is wisdom it's that wisdom is, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. no time. no i don't take it as a knock right, no right, no right. no it's 40 years yeah. of of doing this right I yeah you. let's name drop here of some of the guys that you've gotten you know to to the higher levels of. well i've worked with a lot of guys i mean like it, it, when you say you know the the the, the whole driver and, it, and, it, and the word development never was even used back then. But when Kelly Yarbrough drove for my dad from 1983 through 1986, he left at the end of 86 to buy his own team. Mm-hmm. And so when that happened, we had to have a driver. We had a, we had a really good race team. We had uh, Robert Yates and Joey Knuckles and Tony Price and a bunch of really good guys. I mean, um, just really, really good people but we didn't have a sponsor and we didn't really have a driver and really at that point all the drivers that you could get we didn't really want and all the drivers we wanted we couldn't get so we had a bit of a dilemma so there was like choose between back of the pack guys and then guys we couldn't afford or, or you just guys couldn't who get already signed into a deal yeah you just couldn't get them right. you, know, if you, you couldn't get Earnhardt you couldn't you know I mean you couldn't mm-hmm. get Tim Richmond you couldn't get you know you couldn't get those guys and I just told my dad I said dad we need to make a guy we need to take a guy, and he needs to be our guy. Okay, is that where Davey came That's in? That's where Davey came in, right. Okay. And when, and that was a unique situation because, you know, obviously his father had driven, Bobby had driven for my dad, you know, five or six years earlier. And so we had a relationship with the Allisons, and we knew him, and and we knew Davey. You know, Davey was a teenager when, when Bobby drove, but we had followed him, and, and mainly me, I had followed him very closely. And so I just, I remember, and it was like 1986, around September, August, September, my dad and I had kind of debating it one night, just, you know, he and I was 21 and, you know, I was young and a little bit, a little bit of a know-it-all, a little bit, you know, cause I had my passion, you know, you're 21, you're, that's the way you are. And I just told him, I, said, I, I, I just wouldn't relent. I said, dad, this is the future. This is the move that needs to be made. And he said, well, you got to convince me that this is it. So I said, all right, if i got to convince you, I'll convince you. You know what I mean? And we, we, we stayed up, I think it was like 2 in the morning or something, like really talking about all the options and things and what could, you know, we do. And then, you know, then we had, you know, obviously um, we had guys on the team like Joey Knuckles, who was very good friends with Davey, who was lobbying for him too. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Okay. So we had – a couple of votes. Yeah, we had some votes here, and and, mm-hmm. and and I and I I have to give my dad credit. He had courage, man. He no, he had no sponsor. 
He had, uh, at that point, he had a Ford factory deal. Um, and um, when he said, this is my guy, he was all in. And that's when the Texaco Haviland 28 with Davey that's when it was, was that, born, That's right? when it was born. Yeah, it took a little while. It took about a month up into the season to make it all happen with all the corporate stuff that was going on. But that's how the 28 Davy Allison Ford thing happened. And um, Did you have the Haviland sponsor before no, Davey no, come along? No. Okay, so you had, had to no sell sponsor. them on a rookie driver. Correct. Wow. My dad had courage. <laughs> But he believed, you know, one thing about it, he believed in people. You know, he believed in Robert Yates. He, he believed in Tony Price. He believed in Joey Knuckles. He believed in, he believed in the people that he had, and he believed in Davey. And he said, if we can get these guys all working together, the potential that they have is, 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 is really, really good. And he said, we'll get a sponsor. And he, man, he just did it. He just, he just did it, you know, and it. And it, what's amazing is that turned into like a 30-plus-year sponsor. You know, they stayed in the sport for, for 30, 30 years or whatever. And, uh, and what was amazing, it was, it was a hit right from the get-go. I remember the first test at Daytona. Um, we, we were at Daytona. And at, at that time, you did private tests. So it was just our team. Right. They were testing. I remember the cars would go down. They'd be completely gray. Gray. Or primed. Or primed. Just a number on the door. Or nothing. We yeah. had nothing. Oh, okay. It was because there was nobody there but us. Mm-hmm. And uh, – I remember my dad asking Robert, he goes, well, how much is the driver hurting the car right now? And Robert went, none. We were running like 209 miles an hour, you know. This was before the before restrictor plate. plate. Yeah. <laughs> and Because that was the last Daytona 500 before restrictor plate. Right. And um, so, yeah. So, I mean, that, that, that really got me started on the whole – you know the young driver thing, and I and what what really what people don't really understand is you know um, the Davy Allison situation really opened the door for the Jeff Gordon situation because uh, and, and most fans don't know this, but f- f- you know Ford Motor Company is the one that really had Jeff first. He was with Bill, right Carolina Ford dealers. Yeah, with, it was with uh, the Bush with, team. Well, with Bill Davis, mm-hmm. right? So uh, uh, that was you know that was kind of precipitated by Davy. They saw the, you know, the potential in Davy, and I think that um, uh, there was a lot of energy there. They were like, hey, you know, Davy can do it. This kid can do it. And Davy brought it too in that first year. I mean, he he won races in his rookie season. Yeah, the right? first half of his rookie season. Uh, he yeah, won, he, uh, he he won Talladega in May of his first, and then went right back and won Dover the same month. And. I'm, and at that time, a rookie winning in the Cup Series was unheard of. Well, let alone two races. Right. He won two races. I it, mean, that was um, that was un, un, unreal. The funny thing is, too, if you really think about it, the the next guy who won races in his rookie season was another one of your prospects. Yeah, Tony to- Stewart. Tony Stewart. And, yeah. and that was, what, 99? 99, 99. yeah. So you're talking about an 11-year mm-hmm. window until mm-hmm. another rookie won again. Exactly. So who uh, – do you remember who the rookie was that won before Davey? Uh, I think it was series? Earl Ross, like in the 70s, like wow. early. I think he won Martinsville. He won one race as a rookie. No kidding. Mm-hmm. I think it was 74, if I'm not mistaken. See, He's a Canadian. And, and at, so at that moment when Davey wins his first race, what are you and your father thinking? Like, well, that was a very interesting we, race because that was the race that Bobby Allison got into the grandstands at Talladega. So um, – 
Well, we knew at that point we had a shot to win the Daytona 500 that year, and we had a problem on pit road. Uh, they had a jack problem, and Davey took off without the lug nuts on the on the uh, wheels, mm-hmm. and so we had to pit. And we lost like five or six laps, and we went out and led the race. We qualified second in the Daytona 500. Um, so we knew we were going to be fast, and we went to Talladega and just put it all together. I mean, it was a tremendous race, um, and that was actually the last unrestricted um, – Speedway race. That how was, and how old was Davey at the time when he ran his rookie season? Twenty. Let's see, that was uh, twenty six. Twenty old by today's today's standards. standards <laughs> yeah, but at that time, you know, you didn't you you had thirty five, forty year old drivers. That's just the way it was. Yeah. Right. No, I remember. But, yeah. So because well, back in the day, or from what I had remember, is that someone would come into this sport and run, you know, a, a B or C level oh, car, yeah. and they would bounce around in that for a few seasons, mm-hmm. and then they would move up to something a little faster and then, you know, into a winning team. Yeah. Yeah. You know, nowadays you are just dumped right into, you know, you are and a lot. And in that era, and that's kind of the issue my dad had with Ford motor company. They were like, man, we don't know if we can support this program with this driver. You know, we're one, you know, probably if not the top Ford program, one of the top Ford programs at that time. And, um, my dad said, Hey, that's my driver, you know, (laughs) and they come up, midway through the year and shook his hand. I remember at Michigan said, Hey, we were, we were wrong about that. You know what you're I mean? Right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> so at, before, uh, Davey got picked for the, for the cup series, he, mm-hmm. what was he, he running? He was running. He ran a lot of Arca, Bobby running a lot of Arca, but right. if, if you remember, he ran some, some cup races for that Saddler team out of Nashville. The same one that Jeremy Mayfield drove for. Correct. Him. Okay. Yeah. I think, and even maybe Sterling Marlin ran some for him back early. I think they did. And then, uh, he filled in, in uh, August of 86, he filled in uh, for Neil Bonnet at Talladega. And I think he finished top 10, maybe 7th or 8th, 6th, 7th or 8th. I don't remember. Uh, Davey did. Mm-hmm. And um, so it wasn't like he didn't have any cup experience, but he had won, a, you know, at that point he'd won a lot of ARCA races. He'd done a lot of short track racing. Uh, yeah. Bobby had run him for five years on short tracks. I mean, he'd, they'd put a lot of work. And Davey was a, was a very, very good mechanic and fabricator. So he worked a lot on his own race cars and had done it for years. Okay. So um, so it was a ton of late model racing. Ton of like all pro and okay. all that kind of stuff. He was he was into that pretty big. He didn't do all that great. He did okay, but I think as he moved up, he just learned more and more. You know, on the speedways from his dad. Mm-hmm. You know, being around the NASCAR stuff. And one thing about one thing about um, Davey that I always remember is um, he was very tenacious. You know what I mean? Like he 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 just had a lot of drive. And he was very in tune with what was going on with the car. Mm-hmm. He all, even his dad's stuff. Like he knew what they were doing, why they were doing it, what the results would be. Like he was in tune. Davey was. He was. He was on it. Do you think he, he, he would have made a good uh, crew chief or team owner? I think he would have. Mm-hmm. I think he would have been a multi champion. Yeah. You know, I think he would have been a, 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 probably a three time champion. Um, and he would have been a good owner, a good crew chief, good anything. He just was good. I mean, mm-hmm. just, and he was smart and he was, um, he just understood what was going on. And I'll tell you what he did is he really paid attention to what his dad did, good and bad. Mm-hmm. Like he just had an understanding of, of what to do, even like with the fans, like, like Bobby, they, you know, Bobby was really well liked by the fans. Mm-hmm. Davey was loved by the fans. Right. They I loved him, mm-hmm. but I he guess. knew how to handle himself because he'd seen the mistakes his dad had made. 
and he knew the, the good things and the not-so-good things. Well, Bobby had moved around from a, a bunch of different teams in the 70s and yeah, in the 80s. 13 different owners. Do you think he would have won more than one champion had he had just stayed in one spot? My dad used to say, had Bobby, had Bobby stayed with Junior Johnson or some you know a team like that, mm-hmm. they would have said King Bobby instead of King Richard. Really? That's how good he was. And why did Bobby bounce around so much? Just hard-headed, stubborn, had his own <laughs> ideas. You know what I mean? If he didn't agree with you, then he wanted to do it his way. I mean, you know, he drove his own car for a few years. But everywhere he went, he won, though, too. Everywhere. Right? Yeah. So Everywhere. Which is hard to argue it's with. It's hard to argue. Yeah, I you know, get it. Yeah, I mean, you know, <laughs> pe- people are who they are, you know? Right. So. Well, so that is basically, the Davy stuff is basically for you laying the building blocks for... Uh, finding talent, I guess you could say, because how in the how did you, being a, a stock car guy, start leaning towards someone in the open wheel world like Tony Stewart? Well, um, uh, it's a, a bit of a long story, but so my dad sold the 28 team to Robert Yates at the end of 1988, and um, a couple of years later, I was like, you know, uh, I really had the the ambition to to get back into NASCAR. You know, I was in my early twenties and, and we actually tried to do a deal with Cale Yarborough and buy his team, the, the Trop Arctic, you know, the Phillips 66 team. Mm-hmm. Um, this would have been around 1991. And, um, uh, and at that time, uh, Jeff Gordon was driving for Ford and um, we were, we, we were talking to him and Bobby Labonte were the two guys that we were talking to about buying Kel's team and having them drive. And so a bunch of different things happened, and that deal didn't happen. Mm-hmm. So it was the end of 1991. So I told my dad, I said, just just give me some time and let me just kind of look all around the country. I said, I'll find a driver that we can build a program around. So you're thinking, let's do what we did with Davey. Exactly. Find a driver. But the problem is we didn't have the organization. Build one. Right, yeah. So, but I said, first of all, we need to find somebody we can work with. You know, somebody we can build a program around. I mean, I think I think we had good ideas, not real good execution. Meaning, we didn't really, we weren't really financially set up to do what we needed to do. So, um, we we had partners uh, in this program we put together. It just didn't quite work out. But we did sign Tony in 1990. I went and saw him in '94. So it took a couple of years. I mean, we were out of racing for a while. Mm-hmm. And so, what were you doing in that time? Uh, in Kentucky, uh, I was in training racehorses. My dad was pretty much semi-retired. He had went through some serious financial stuff uh, with the coal business that he had to clean up. So he had some, you know, he had some stuff to do. He had homework to do mm-hmm. to kind of get his uh, self. So he was, you know, semi-retired. He was, he was nearly, you know, sixty years old, and he had kind of done everything he wanted to do in racing. But I was. You know, I was gung ho, and I wanted to, you know, do some stuff. And you're still in your twenties. I'm in my twenties, early twenties. So, right. So you're yeah. thinking, what am I going to do what, for a career? What am I doing? Yeah, because okay. I thought I was going to be involved in NASCAR, and you know, I trained racehorses as well, and I was, I thought I was going to be involved in that. All that went away. So, you know, my whole, my whole world kind of blew up in my twenties. So I just had to figure out, okay, well, what's, what's next for me? You know, he'd already done everything he kind of wanted to do. So I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, if I can pick one thing, it's going to be NASCAR. Mm-hmm. If, if I can pick one thing in life, it'll be NASCAR. And um, so I have to give my mother credit because she said, well, if you want to be a NASCAR, you need to be in Charlotte because we were living in Kentucky at the time in Lexington. 
And um, uh, so I moved uh, to Charlotte and we worked on um, this program. I went in 94, I went to the Four Crown in, in Eldora and met Tony. I'd been watching him for about a year, actually, and um, went and talked to him. And uh, I said, you interested in doing any stock car racing? He goes, hell yeah, I am. So we kind of developed a, a friendship and had him come down and we, you know, worked on some stuff. It took about a year. And then we uh, had some partners from Florida and we put a little pro, a little bush program together and ran him a few races. And then he was doing that along with the IndyCar stuff with John Menard. This was 96. And, um, and lo and behold, it was about midway through 96, Joe Gibbs calls my dad and says, I'd like to buy Tony Stewart's contract. And that's how Tony ended up at, at so Joe. your dad held Tony's contract. He did, but he wasn't in racing, or well, he, well yeah, it was just yeah, a we business had, deal. Well, no, we we had a Bush team, so we signed, oh okay, the, yeah, so we signed Tony to a three year contract, and we started this Bush team. Okay, and uh, that was '96, so we were running a few races, not very well, but uh, we run we run a few a, a handful of races with Tony because he was doing IndyCar, USAC, and NASCAR all at the same time. Right. So in my mind, I was like, I want to make this guy the next Parnelli Jones. You know, he can just. He can drive anything. The next AJ Foyt, you know, he can he can do it all. Which he can. Which he can. Yeah, yeah. Right. He proved many times that he could. And um, so uh, Joe Gibbs called my dad. We went and met with Joe, and Joe ended up signing Tony. He bought Tony's contract. Really? So that's how he ended up with uh, with uh, Joe Gibbs Racing. But before any of that happened, there's an interesting story behind Tony coming to NASCAR because mm-hmm. he had also had an offer from AJ Foyt, right? He did. At the same time, right, he tested for A.J. Foyt, and um, this would have been in 95. Yeah. Yeah, because that's the year he won the USAC Triple Crown. Mm-hmm. was 95. So he tested for A.J., and then he had been working with us for about a year. So uh, he had to make a decision. You know, do you want to go IndyCar racing or do you want to go NASCAR racing? And at that time, I just don't think the, the, um, uh, the long-term – situation with aj was that good and we felt like we could give him a better opportunity and he picked uh he picked us over aj it's a big decision it's a big decision you know everyone knows aj was tony's hero no doubt (laughs) yeah no doubt a lot of people's heroes and uh but no he had to make a decision and he and he chose wisely i mean for the longevity of his his career i think he made the right move you know because he he ended up getting to do both because uh carrie agajanian was representing him at the time and Kerry ended up working a deal with John Menard, so he ended up running the IRL and NASCAR at the same time. Yeah, he did win an IRL championship. He did, yeah, yeah 90, 97, mm-hmm. right. So, um, so he made he made the right move. You know, I just I wish we could have done a better job for him, but I, I think my dad and I realized very early, really, really early, that it's like we have way more driver than we have organization at this time because we were just starting over. We had nothing. Was this, this wasn't the 44 shell car. No, right? no, no. That was after that. Okay. That was, that, that was Labonte's car. Right. Gibbs did a deal with them. This was the fit number 15 it said Mariah entertainment. And then it, then it had no sponsor on it. Uh, it's an, it was a white number 15 that okay. he drove in 96. Okay. And uh, we realized at that point, it's like, we have way more driver than we do organization. And then Joe came, and it's like, so we made a deal, Joe, to buy his contract. And because I told my dad, I said, look, we're gonna we're gonna hold back. If we don't let this guy go, we're gonna hold back one of the greatest American race car drivers. Right. You can't do that. We mm-hmm. can't do that. We can't do that to the sport. 
you know, this 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 guy deserves to be at a, at a Joe Gibbs Racing. It's pretty big of you to think of that in that broad of a perspective because nowadays with the money and the t- way the teams are, you know, if you, you're signed into a contract, you're, you're locked in. You know, I, I, I agree with that to a point, but I think we all have to do what's best for the sport long term. You can't be looked at like that. I, th- I feel like my dad had a really good reputation in racing. As an owner, he did a lot of good things. And I think you have to continue that thought process. And, um, you know, Joe Joe paid amount of money to get Tony out of the contract, so it wasn't like we just gave him to him. Right. So, you know, it was a business deal. Mm-hmm. You know, it looks cheap now compared to what it did then. But you know what? He It was all done correctly. Mm-hmm. And we would have... We would have hindered Tony's career had we not done it. Now, um, did your team fold after that? Did it you? ran. Uh, we ran a half a season of Cup in '97 with Greg Sachs, and then it folded about halfway through '97. Uh, it was called Rainier Walsh Racing, and these guys in Florida were really the funding behind it. And I think they realized how hard sponsors were to get, and they basically just stopped funding the program, and it ended up ended up shutting down. That that is one of the hardest things to do. Without in, a doubt, oh my God. Well, you think one thing, and then you get involved, and you realize this is really hard. Yeah, uh, I'm working for a racetrack now, you know, mm-hmm. and one of the things that they would like me to do is find sponsors for them. But it's like, how do you? you know, it's it's very hard to knock on someone's door and go, "Hi, can you give me some money so we can go play?" And it's cold calling is very very tough you better have a relationship or a contact or uh, i call it like a a center of influence to make something like that happen very hard to do so with all of this going on with the the, you know finding davy and then just discovering tony what kind of uh are you at this point realizing i'm putting together or putting a pattern together of being able to cultivate talent in this sport i I knew i had a feel for it Mm because i was two for two at that point you know, I mean, mm-hmm. I was two for two. Well, really three for three because we were really going to cut a deal with Jeff Gordon when we did Kale's team. So I had at, at, at one point I had Davy Allison, Jeff Gordon, and Tony Stewart in my hand. Wow. So I was really kind of three for three. I really never got to work with Jeff other than, you know, we talked about doing a deal. Mm-hmm. That was about as far as we got. But but he was all in, and, and John Bickford was all in at that point as well. Okay. You know what I mean? Uh, that was 1991. So I knew that I had a feel for it. Um, I was down here just trying to figure out what I was going to do. And, um, I really enjoyed spotting. I just enjoyed it. I was late twenties. I was around 30 years old then. And I said, you know what? I want to be a spotter. I want to, I feel like, you know, I've watched one car my whole life. And so I started spotting and, um, I had an opportunity to spot for, uh, Jerry Nadeau. He worked for Bill Elliott mm-hmm. and I spotted for Jerry Nadeau for about five or six races. It was really funny. That was the Dan Marino deal. It right? was. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah, it was Dan Marino, Elliott Marino. And uh, I spotted for, for, uh, Nadeau for about, it must've been five, six, maybe eight races. And then Cindy Elliott comes to me and says, um, she said, I, I don't want you spotting for Nadeau anymore. I'm like, why? What? What did I do? I mean, I feel like I'm doing a good job. She goes, you're too good. I want you spotting for Bill. <laughs> <laughs> so she moved me to Bill. Oh, so no she, way. So she moved me to Bill. So I started spotting for Bill Elliott in uh, 1998. And so I did that for a couple of years all the way through. See, 98, 99, 2000. Uh, and then I went to work for um, when Chip Ganassi 
um, came into the sport in uh-huh. 2000. He bought uh, Felix Sabatis out, right. Sabco. Uh-huh. So I was a part of that process. Andy Graves, I developed a, re- a really good relationship with Andy Graves, and he allowed me to be a part of that, and I kind of helped uh, – facilitate the engine program that they had with Ernie Elliott, Bob Fisher, and Tony Santanacola, uh, and the Dodge uh, deal that they had. I kind of helped facilitate both of those deals when Chip came into the sport in 2001. Right, with the Dodge with program. the Dodge program, yeah. Mm-hmm. So I was, I was very heavily involved in that. And I ended up being Sterling Marlin's spotter for um, about three years. So when Sterling was winning all those races and pulling the fender and all that stuff at <laughs> that Daytona, was you? I was a spotter then. Oh. Yeah. So who did someone tell him to get out of the car and no, he did it. Well, what he, the whole thing was this. So they have the red flag and the fender is rubbing hard on the tire. Right. He has to pit anyway, right? So everybody gives him a hard time over this, and he and he, he really doesn't deserve it because he gets out of the car and he goes, he goes, hey Glover, I'm gonna get out and look at the look at this fender. Well, he gets out and he sees it's it's all over the tire. There's there's no way that he can race it because it's going to cut the tire. Right. What's he got to lose? I mean, he he knows he can't do it. He knows he's got to come in. He's got to pit anyway. Uh, Okay. You see, what if he gets one good tug on it, gets it off the fender, or gets the fender off the tire, and he wins the Daytona 500? Right. And he got away with it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had nothing to lose. I mean, people give him so much, (laughs) but you know, the 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 tire was gonna was gonna be cut. Yeah. There was no way to get around it, and uh, so, but. I'm on the radio when he, you know, he's out of the car and I'm like, Glover, he, he can't do that. He goes, yeah, I know, I know, I know. He can't. <laughs> exactly I said, what Benny Parsons right. said on he's TV. Like, he can't do that, you know. But that was, I have to tell you, that was probably some of the most fun I've ever had in my life was working with Sterling. Um, uh, Lee McCall was the crew chief and Tony Glover called the races. That group of guys were just amazing. Tony Cola was the uh, engine tuner. I mean, we just had a really great group of guys that Andy Graves had assembled for that team and it was so much fun we were competitive i mean everywhere we went with that with that dodge program with sterling in 2001 and 2002 we were competitive until he, he ended up uh, getting in an accident and breaking cracked his breaking neck his neck right. right but then yeah. you put mcmurray in the car and he and, wins in his second race and out. i spotted that race <laughs> yeah i did that was that was a big win yeah and that i was, was a part cool. of that whole process the whole mcmurray process back back then so uh so you so, wait a minute you you talent scouted him too with, yeah with uh with ganassi yeah i was part of that and reed Sorensen and david Stremmy and all those yeah so while you're spotting you're also scouting for these guys yeah for chip more for okay. more for chip and uh um, I did as 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 time went on. I did kind of have two jobs. I worked with uh, with uh, uh, motorsports management with Kerry Agajanian. Mm-hmm. I worked with him a little bit in the late two thousands. Uh, so uh, I always had a couple of jobs. You know, I'd work with consulting deal with Chip, and then I had a deal with uh, with uh, with MMI as well. So um, and then I went on and worked with Spire as well. It gets into the whole Kyle Larson thing and all that stuff. So. But, yeah, the, those couple of years that we had with Sterling, God, that was so much fun. I mean, I just couldn't wait to get to the racetrack every week because really? we knew we were going to be fun. We, knew, we knew we were going to be fast, and we knew we were going to have fun. We just knew we were going to have a good time because that's Sterling. I mean, you're just going to have a good – I mean, he's just fun to be around. Is he? Yeah, he's just, he was the last of the old throwback, you know, the old school 70s style of driver. You know what I mean? The good old boy driver. And he was just fun to be around. And we were competitive, and it was fast, and you know we had a cool. To me, one of the best looking cars ever. That was a cool. Looking was car. that that silver bullet? I mean, that car was just. 
and to spot it, you could see it from a mile away because it was silver with Dayglow Dayglow numbers on it. So for me to get to spot that car was so much fun. I mean, just I, I, you know, I, I think back about it and think about how that was like the pinnacle for me in spotting was to get to work with with him and and to do that. So it was fun, and then to win that race with Jamie probably was the pinnacle because in all reality, Jamie ran Talladega. They call it his second start, but the first race was a speedway race. Mm-hmm. In all reality, it was his first race right. in, in a normal type of race, not a speedway race. Right, uh, yeah, because I remember that because mm-hmm. Talladega was the first race, and then a week later he ran. He ran Charlotte. Charlotte. Yeah. Now, what makes, uh, you, you know, with doing the spotting, what makes a good spotter? Well, you know, that that's – I think you have to have a really good knowledge of the sport, right? A good understanding, a, a, a good general understanding of what's going on. You know, I've – I think a lot of dri- uh, 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 ex-drivers make good spotters. Uh, I never was that. You know, I just was around racing all my life, and I feel like I just had a good knowledge of racing, and I had a good eye for, for racing. Because it's funny, those that the 2000 and 2001, uh, I was actually Jimmy Johnson's spotter in the Bush Series. Okay. So I helped develop Jimmy Johnson as well at the same time I was doing the Sterling Marlin thing. <laughs> yeah, so... so um, who haven't you worked with? Uh, right? yeah, that's that's true. Exactly. <laughs> that's the question. Yeah, and so so uh, Jimmy, even Jimmy, would give me credit decade later about working with me back then because I was so just on top of him. Like this is right, that's wrong. Like he'd make a mistake. I'm like that was wrong. Mm-hmm. Immediate. You know what I mean? Like correct it now. That type of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just I think I just I felt like I gave him a good understanding of 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 how to of how to race this style of racing. There was no doubt he had amazing talent and speed. No, no, there's no doubt about that, Mm -hmm. but it's, it's understanding when to use the speed, how to position yourself. You know, I think that's what makes a good spotter is just, you know, being able to relay information that's useful to the driver. And another thing being a good spotter too is trust. Cause I, the the minute they don't trust you, you're done. They're not going to listen to you. No, whether you're done, they'll fire you. Oh, really? Yeah, you're done. It's mm-hmm. not they're going to listen to you. If they're not going to listen to you, they don't need you. Yeah. So you're done. So um, I'd always de- I felt like I always developed that sort of relationship with uh, um, with all the drivers I worked with. You know, because I'd call them out on things. If they made a mistake, I would say that was a mistake. Even even older drivers mm-hmm. like Sterling and guys like that, if I worked with a, with a driver, an experienced driver, uh, even like you know, I spotted for Jamie for a long time, right, for seasons, and I would be like, man, that didn't look right. That wasn't good. That type of thing. And he, honestly, I think they'd appreciate that. You know, when, you know, they, because to me about the the driving part of it, and you know, by, by racing, you've raced to, you know, if you do something and it feels right, that's, that's a good feeling, right? Right. But if somebody tells you that it's right and it feels right, that's confidence. Yeah. It solidifies it more. Exactly. Okay. So that's how I would work as a spotter. Mm-hmm. I would see it like. Like if the, just out of the blue, if I saw them make a corner, I would just they'd come off too. I'd say that was a good corner, just out of the blue, not not not. There's nobody around you. There's nobody, but like what you did right there was good. Mm-hmm. So that boom registers registers, or that is like they'll come off the corner. I'm, I'm like that didn't look right. That wasn't right. Rethink how you did that because that just. You know, the angle of that wasn't right or the way the car's pointed wasn't right or how they arced it, how in. they arced it or whatever. I'm right. like, that didn't, don't don't do that one again. 
you have a really hard job because I've tried spotting before and not only do you have to watch your car, you gotta have eyes in the back of your head because you have to know like who's on what lap, who came in and pitted it, mm -hmm. you know, who has fresher tires than who. It's, you do. It's a, it's yeah. a huge mind chess game. It is. And I'm really glad I don't do it anymore, honestly. <laughs> no, I am. Because I really respect the guys that do it now. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm very good friends with all those guys still. Um, you know, Matt Hirschman and, and mm -hmm. Derek Nealon and all those guys – uh, Mike Herman and I mean I'm friends with all those guys, all of them. Eddie DeHunt, you know. How and, many fights have you seen up in the spotters? <laughs> you know, it's you get you get a little bit of that, but I think there's a lot of respect. You know, yeah. I think what happens is you'll you'll get people that get upset with with um, guys that do really dumb things. You know, like if you'll get an inexperienced spotter with an inexperienced driver and they do something really stupid, that's when the veteran guy will go over to them and just literally tear into them. They'll just they'll just rip them, and honestly, they kind of deserve it, you know. Mm -hmm. Because if you're going to be at the cup level, especially, don't go up there if you don't know what you're doing. Don't don't do it because it's just not it's 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 very unproductive if you go up there and you don't know what you're doing. You need to you need to hire somebody that knows what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Don't send somebody up there that doesn't have an understanding of what's going on, especially like when you're trying to do qualifying runs and people get they pull out in front of other people and. They just, they just don't understand, you know what I mean, what they're doing. So um, so not a lot of fights. I mean, a lot of heated words. Mm -hmm. But you know what? The spotters are not driving the cars. Right. You know what I mean? All you're doing is relaying information. And and then really the, the, the thing you have to realize, a spotter is a safety device. That's what it was intended for, is mm -hmm. for safety. So that's your main function. is And, you, you know, you, you've turned into a competitive device, but you're – you're a safety device is what your first function is. And that's what I always try to remember is I got to keep this guy safe. And mm -hmm. that's the most important thing. I mean, I'm going to do what I got to do to, to get him around the racetrack faster. But the first thing I'm going to do is get him around the racetrack safely. And that's what you have to really remember. And a lot of guys sometimes lose focus of that. At what point do you start to move away from spotting in the Cup Series full time and start working in these other development series like ARCA and the yeah, Super that, late models? And yeah, and that all started really. Um, uh, you know, kind of. I, I started working with uh, MMI late two thousands, then I went on over to Spire. I worked at Spire doing uh, a lot of development for for those. So I found myself spotting Cup races and thinking about development. That's not a good combination, meaning when you're spotting, you need to be 100% focused as a spotter, okay. not as what you're doing. So I started drifting away from the spotting probably 2012, 2013, 14. And so finally in 2015 was my last full season of cup spotting. I did a little bit of it after that, like if somebody needed a fill-in or, you know, like when uh, Matt Kenseth, uh, when his – uh, spotter got hurt in a car wreck i spotted for him at daytona um i'd like to have that race back actually <laughs> um but you know the, uh, i just felt i was losing a lot of interest in spotting I, I really wanted to do development and then i got involved in a um in a development team uh 2016 it was that mdm team and the first year was actually Rainier racing with MDM right I, in I was there I was in yeah, the pit area 2016 and uh so I was part of that program uh for a couple of years and then uh and then I started working really closely with Chevrolet and Driver's Edge mm -hmm. um 
and did that for a few years with Sam Mayer, Sheldon Creed, Zane Smith. All those guys were all my guys. So um, I directed all their careers. And, uh, and up to what I'm doing now is, is, is uh, working um, with Chevrolet now full time. Now, how hard is it when you are developing multiple guys and they're driving for different teams and, you know, they have an issue? Um, you just, you know, you deal with every situation as, as you, as it is, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, if they have an issue, you work it out. I mean, I mean, I, I, I don't dictate what happens on the racetrack. They do. Mm-hmm. My job is to put them in the best possible position to get on the racetrack, mm-hmm. best team, best driver or best crew chief, best, you know, put them in the best environment. What they do on the track is, is their business. You know, I don't, I don't tell them what to do. You know I mean? It's, you know, I want to get them in the best environment they can be in. And so they can, so they can reach the level of talent that they have. That's, that's what I try to do. And the cup series is a grind. I mean, you guys are gone for weeks and weeks uh, on, on end. What is, and that was part of it as well. Um, uh, I had two young sons and um, I really never, got to be around them much mm-hmm. uh, they're up in their teens now um and um i was really tired of the thursday through sunday grind mm-hmm. and uh i kind of wanted to be more on my own time and 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 work with the developments um you know i've i've, I've been going to all these racetracks since i was five years old right since the 70s you know early 70s you know uh, and i did almost 20 years of uh spotting mm-hmm. from around 95 with uh, Tony, ninety five, ninety six, all the way to two thousand fifteen. So, I did about twenty years of of spotting, um, like from like age thirty to fifty. And I was like, you know, it, that, that's that's enough spotting. You know, I, I did I, I did that, and um, so I wanted to just get into this development and do this development stuff. And I really like it, and I love what I do now. Like I I just I love working with the parents. I like working with the kids. I love seeing the progression. Uh, I love helping these kids and parents make decisions. I love working with uh, Josh Wise and uh, Eric Warren and all the guys at Chevrolet. Um, I just really like what I do now. Uh, it's just it's it's so rewarding uh, to get to to get to see these kids move like they move. You know. Well, that and also you're you're not constantly, I should say, married to married to this one thing you get instead of having this an eight day a week job you have a five day a week job right well i have an everyday job because i live it every day it's a lifestyle but i love it you know i mean like i can't wait to get up every day and go to the 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 the, the shops and meet with the teams and then go to the racetrack on the weekends and watch the kids progress and watch them race and just the lingo of it the talk of it the feel of it um the life of it mm-hmm. it's just the life i just I love the racing life. I, yeah. I, I don't know how to I don't know how to explain it any other way, but like I'm getting paid to do something that I love. I mean, it doesn't get really any much any better than that. You can't do much better than get to do something you love. You get to help young people achieve their dreams. You get to watch parents see their kids achieve their dreams. Mm-hmm. I mean. You know that's just about as rewarding as you can as you can do. You know, so it's what nurture, I, it's it's nurturing. It's them, nurturing, and, and and what I tell everybody, you know, when I meet with somebody, is and this is all that I can give you. I can I, I I've got forty plus years of experience in this business. Um, what would I do with your son or daughter if 
they were my son or daughter. Mm-hmm. That's all I can give you. What would I do if that was my son or my daughter? That's what I'm giving you. Right. I can't give you anymore. There's nothing. There's there's no more in me. Right. Than that. We're seeing, you know, uh, with the development of these drivers too, like different tools they're using mm-hmm. for for getting better. Like mm-hmm. the the iRacing is huge mm-hmm. for a lot of these young kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, we simulators. Hear, the, we hear a lot of the simulators. How do you have any involvement with that or trying I, to get them into uh, like the well, virtual racing? More, more with our Chevrolet program. Josh Wise kind of handles all okay. all of that. Um, he 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 makes that he makes all that happen. I'm more I'm more the ground game at the short tracks and at the shops that's really where my my influence is and that's really my sweet spot is that like a boots on the ground thing yeah kind of in a way but because the thing is you can't evaluate these kids unless you're there and i try to make as much time as i can to physically watch these kids race i don't want to watch videos i want to watch the race i want to feel the race and feel where they are and feel the stress and you know what i mean it's I want to be there. That's why you'll see me at, you know, all these short tracks. And and honestly, Derek, I love it. I mean, I love being with these kids, with these parents, with these teams, and giving what I can give to 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 watch those kids progress. And they know? put on a show too. Yeah, and that, they win. Yeah. When you put them in the right spots with the right people, with their talents. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, look at the year William Swalish has had this year. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. But he's with amazing people. He's an amazing talent. And look at – he's won races all over the country for all different teams. Yeah. It's just – he's 15. It's incredible. Know, you know right? what I mean? It's it's truly incredible. Probably started when he was five, though, uh, right? Well, no, he started when he was nine in a quarter midget just for okay. fun. He's not a racing family. Okay. Yeah, just something they did as, as – as, you know, that, hey, you might like doing this. And, it, and just, you know, it's just been amazing. And – you know, just to get to work with all these things, uh, like what Katie Hettinger's done. You know, she's she's just turned 15 years old, and she's won more races at Hickory Speedway than any female driver in 70 years. Wow. She just turned 15. It was reading something like that in the social media yeah. uh, post that uh, she was doing. Yeah, um, it's incredible. Katie Hettinger. Is he related to, to Jim Hettinger? It's his granddaughter. Wheel? Oh, it's his, okay. his granddaughter. I used to watch him on Thursday Night Thunder. Oh, absolutely. So how far down uh, the grassroots ladder are you going? I mean, I've seen you at the ARCA races, the super late model races. Oh, yeah. Are you even going down as far as Legends. looking at go-kart kids? Uh, yes. Well, we Really? Got, yeah, well, we have Connor Zilich out of the karting. Uh, you know he's he's one of the top carters in the country. He's, he just turned sixteen, and um, and uh, Connor Zillish is one of the best go carters in the country, in the world for that matter, not just the country. Really? Yeah. So he's he's on the Chevrolet program, wow. and uh, yeah, that's it's just incredible. There there's so many talented kids out there, and you know you just have to kind of find the ones that fit, and you think that have the the possible progression to make it to make it up and make it through. So you guys yeah. are looking even at some of the first rungs of racing for, for I think you have talent. to because I think I think with where the sport is headed you know don't don't be surprised to see 19-year-old cup drivers, yeah. 20-year-old cup drivers. Like mm-hmm. kind of like what Kyle Busch did. Don't don't be a don't that that could be the normal in 5 years. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I kind of believe it because you know the the average age is dropping lower and lower. It is one of the. Th- uh, let me ask you though, when you are looking for a driver, uh, I mean, obviously there's a lot of kids out there that can drive them. Mm-hmm. 
there's not a lot of kids out there that can drive them and work on them. Is True. that something that you think is an ed, I mean, is an added uh, well, help, it, or it doesn't matter because it's know. just I, the driving for but you? But again, I think you have to take every driver individually because, you know, you look at a guy like Kyle Larson, doesn't know really anything about a car, just mm-hmm. can drive it. I mean, right. just can do it. Mm-hmm. You know, just a natural ability to do it. So I, I don't. You know, I don't go this like you there's no half to this, half to that. Mm-hmm. I look at every driver's situation and then I I just go off the feel that I have with it and then go with it. That's really what it is. I mean you look at a kid like, you know, you've had on the show, Carson Quapple. I mean that that kid can build a race car. Right. And he can drive one as good as he can build it. Right. I mean he's a wheel man, he's an animal. And uh but he can get out of it and tell you what to fix. And there's other drivers that says it's tight or loose. And they do really well also. So I just don't, I, I just don't, I don't pigeonhole them that way because everybody's an individual and you have to rate them on who they are just because they're not that good at, you know, this doesn't make them a bad race car driver. I mean, gotcha. you look at a guy like Bobby Allison and a guy like Cale Yarborough. Well, Bobby Allison could build the engine. Cale Yarborough, I don't know that he could do anything on a car. Really? Nothing. Really? Yeah. No kidding. Nothing. Like wow. nothing. Even back in that day, in nothing. that era, when you had to work on your own stuff, he nothing. didn't know how to work on cars? No. He really? drove them. He just drove them. No kidding. Yeah. And that's just the way, you know, that's just the way it was. And then you look at him, he won 83 races, Bobby won 85. KO won three championships, Bobby won one. Right. I mean, and one I just... Could, one could build stuff, one, one couldn't. One couldn't. Yeah. Wow. But I can tell you one thing, when it comes to inside that cockpit... He knew exactly what he had to do, gotcha. and that's where it counted for him. Wow. So, you know, he was around the right people, around the right crew chiefs, around the right teams, and they provided the product, and he got in and got the job done. He did his job. So I just don't – you know, I think everybody's an individual. I think you just have to look at it that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not – you know, well, if, if he can't do this, we're not interested. That's just not how it works. Gotcha. So you're, you're involved in the Chevrolet program mm-hmm. now. Uh, first, how's that been going? And then number two is what are the types of drivers that they're looking for? Well, uh, how's it been going? It's in its infancy. So this is the first year. So mm-hmm. we have a, a group of uh, kids together right now. And uh, um, uh, younger, definitely teenage, really from about 14 to, say, 19 would be the would be the age. It's not like we're looking for drivers up in their 20s, that type of thing. So um, and just you know, really, we're just kind of taking laser shots on these guys and just picking guys that we feel like that would have the potential to be uh, cup drivers in the future. Are there any particular series or types of cars that you're looking at? Are you looking at guys in micro sprints? Are you you looking at guys in late models or someone's in a modified? Again, it's that individual. If we feel like that individual fits the what kind of, you know, again, for me, it's more feel of like, you know, does this guy, does he kind of fit the criteria of what we're looking for? Mm-hmm. And that's it. It's it, They could come from anywhere. They could, Again, you know, Connor Zilich is from go-karts and Luke Fenhouse is from super late models. It mm-hmm. doesn't really, you know, uh, we're working with Gavin Bochel and he's open wheel. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, you know, they can come from anywhere. Do you, uh, um, obviously money helps a lot, oh, yeah. you know, and if there's a lot of buy a ride going, along, oh, going yeah. on out there mm-hmm. right now. Um, is it harder to look for the drivers that say have talent but aren't driving but don't have a lot of money, or is it 
is it uh, is it easier, you know, to be able to see obviously one of these young kids that has a lot of backing behind them and, and get behind them? Well, it's a balance. I mean, obviously, you you've you've, you've kind of you have to kind of weigh both of it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it certainly takes money to race, no question about it. It's it's a, it's a cruel part of this sport because if we had a 16 year old kid that could throw a baseball 94 miles an hour he's going to get to play mm-hmm. you know what i mean he right. doesn't have to bring a sponsor to play um at this level we 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 have to uh you know we have to figure out how to balance that and use the resources that each individual driver has uh, and utilize those resources and those those are part of the decision making process of where they go mm-hmm. of what you know you know, if they, you know, if we'd like to see them at a certain level, but we don't have the funding, they, they just can't be at that level. They have to race at a different level. That doesn't mean they eventually won't get to that level. Right. But right now, this is where we are, and this is what we have to work with, and this is how it works. So, okay. Yeah. So there's no, again, there is no set protocol on any of that. It's all by kind of how we feel and how you know it, it what fits with what we have to work with. You know, you've seen, like you said, like so many different decades of the sport. So mm-hmm. you have, you know, came up from where drivers got a ride based on their talent, mm-hmm. and now drivers getting, you know, rides because they're buying the rides. Is is that frustrating for you to watch, or is it something that is just it's the nature of the beast now, or part of the well, game? Well, the the problem is even even back in the day, somebody had to pay for it. Mm-hmm. So the money had to come from somewhere. Racing's not free. Right, you've got to pay mechanics and people and build cars and so. Okay, were sponsors easier to get? Maybe were there less drivers wanting to come to NASCAR at that time? Probably, you know, because you had Indy cars and all that kind of stuff. So, yes, I mean, would it be a perfect world to say, you know, here's an unlimited budget, go hire the best drivers you can hire? I'd love that. Is that reality? There's no way. I mean, it's just no way. I mean, the world doesn't work that way, you know? So the challenges are talent, funding. Mm -hmm. How do we balance that with what we're doing? And that's what we do. And again, it it just, I would love to say, you know, you know, go hire the best guys, but I, I really do believe that we have some incredibly talented guys that do have, you know, backing, some backing, you okay. know, and that's what we try to do, you know, because what happens is even the, the talented guys will get people, you know, behind them as they move up when people see the talent. Mm-hmm. They'll get local sponsors or regional sponsors or, you know, whatever it is to help them make those transitions up. And we try to utilize that the best we can as we're making them. So, again, it's a bit of a dance, you know, that you're trying to play of, of trying to get them to the, the best spots and with the best people and, um and try to figure out how to pay for it. Yeah, like you said, there's that balance that you you go for. Uh, you've got these young guys like William Sawalich, mm-hmm. and um, is there anyone that you haven't gotten yet that's on your radar that you well, I'm really certainly not going to tell here. <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, of course, there's people out there that you know you're always looking at. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean there there are guys that that we currently watch and uh, you know we keep an eye on and follow, but I, I mean. Honestly, I really like the the guys and the girl we have now. I mean, it's uh, it's a really it's a really good group of, of race car drivers. The the dirt trend is becoming bigger and bigger mm-hmm. to find to find talent. Uh, do you agree with that? 
You know, I just agree. This is what I agree. I agree that really good race car drivers can drive anything. That's what I agree with. And if they come from dirt, hey, listen, Tony Stewart could run, you know, he could run a dirt race on Friday night and a pavement race on Saturday night and another dirt race on uh, Sunday afternoon and win them all. Hmm. So I just believe really good race car drivers can drive anything. And if they come from dirt, that's great. You know what I mean? It's, 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 it, I mean, listen, it's, it's a great discipline, you know, the, the, the understanding vehicle dynamics and, you know, even for that matter, you know, I worked with Sheldon Creed and, you know, he come from off road and, you know, that guy can handle a race car as well as anybody. Same with Jimmy, you know, Jimmy was an off road driver, mm-hmm. you know, they just understand the dynamics of how vehicles, you know, go when they're out of shape. Mm-hmm. They know, they know what to do. They, because you're always you're you're always on that edge. You're always it, on the cause, edge. No, because I've done off road races before, and you yeah. have to have vehicle control, and you have to be way ahead of yourself when you're driving, mm-hmm. understanding where you are and how it all moves. So, um, but again, I'm I'm, you know, you you look at drivers like that; they're just completely, you know, off road. I kind of look at them as like bull riders. You know, I mean, they just they're just crazy how they drive those cars. Then you look at a guy like William Byron; he's never done that. He's just race legends. He ran late, ran late models. Started ran, late. Started late. Mm-hmm. Ran East cars. Mm-hmm. He's a cup winner. Yeah. I mean, I, I just don't, there's no pigeonhole of anybody. I think you look at everybody as an individual mm-hmm. and you rate them as an individual and what you think their potential is. And that's, and that's really kind of how I do it. It's not, you know, the, the best dirt driver and the best asphalt driver. I mean, once you get in that cup car, you know, it's all pretty equal then. Mm-hmm. It's what it's it's how you utilize, especially the way the Cup Series is now. The way you utilize the parts and pieces that you have, because the guy next to you has the same pieces. Yeah, exactly the same pieces right. now. Now they're all the same. Yeah, now they're the same. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. I just think you have to uh, you rate these guys for who they are and where they can go as you see it, and that's what I do. You know, it's funny that you touch on you know the Cup cars of the the modern era, how they are closer now than they have ever been. Uh, comparing eras, who could you like take out of that 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 '90s era, late '80s, early '90s era, or even mid '90s, uh, and possibly drop them in a car in the '60s or late '70s, and for which teams? Well, uh, for sure, you could take Tony Stewart. I mean, he's to me, he's the modern day AJ Foyt, mm-hmm. and AJ Foyt did it well. Um, uh, AJ drove for the Woods Brothers back in that era, won the Daytona 572, won a lot of races. I think he won like seven total NASCAR races, but he didn't run very many. Mm-hmm. Um, f- for sure, Tony Stewart. To- I-, I think Tony Stewart is a champion in in any era of racing. I mean, all the way back to the 30s. You think He's, he would have been a good fit with the Wood Brothers? I think he, I, I think Tony Stewart's a good fit with anybody. Yeah, true. I mean, I just I've watched him race any kind of car. I think um, I think he's a good fit um, uh, for anybody. Um, he could have drove for Junior Johnson, you know, um, Holman and Moody, mm-hmm. you know, like Lorenzen. Any of those teams in that era, Tony Stewart fits. Mm-hmm. He just, you know, he's just one of the most versatile drivers that I've ever seen. I mean, a guy that you could take anywhere in any kind of car, road course, dirt, doesn't matter, speedway, mm-hmm. you know, 
Um, he's going to make it go. He's going to win. And not make it go, he's going to win. Right. That's just – it's just – you know, again, that goes back to that whole thing of an individual. You know, I just think you, that's what you're looking for is that, you know, that intangible um, – I don't know what that is, but, you know, it's kind of like when they say uh, uh, an actor or somebody has it. They yeah. have they have the it factor. The it factor. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the same thing in, with race car drivers. You know, the, the guys that are world class, like a Tony Stewart, I think you could put him in any era of racing on any surface. And it could be IndyCars, Sprint Cars, NASCAR. A guy like that is going to win anywhere. Same thing with A.J. Foyt. I mean, if you take the 1962 A.J. Foyt mm-hmm. and put him in night in 2022, that guy, yeah, he's a superstar. Okay, that's you, my opinion. You think I, you could with someone like a, a Kyle Larson of the modern era or something like that could thrive with would thrive back in the I, 70s or something? Yeah, it, it just. I, the reason I say yes is because Mario Andretti did. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, Kyle Larson is like a modern-day Mario Andretti. Like, if you took Kyle Larson to F1 and gave him the proper team, the proper testing, and all the tools, he would be competitive yeah. in, in F1. Mm-hmm. He would. It's just the fact of i like to call it the two tenths factor any car they come to they bring two tenths to it mm-hmm. you know it's it's one of those guys that you know that anything they hop in they're gonna yeah, go fast they're gonna go good so i so the era you know um would there be drivers that are mediocre drivers that were in that 90s era that would struggle with big heavy cars no power steering lots of heat I mean, yeah, they they would struggle, but to wrestle them, they'd have to wrestle them. But you know, I mean, I think the drivers have changed a little bit. But I think anytime you take a world class driver, they're world class. Mm-hmm. They can do it all. They can do it. You know, I mean, it's just, um, I think they fit in. I think world class fits in any era. Right. My opinion. Well, the the big difference between you know the cars then and the cars now is. Now they handle, you know. Mm-hmm. Do you think now that it is too much of the car and not enough of the driver that we're seeing because the cars handle so well and they're easier to drive than they were yeah. back in the yeah, day? Yeah, because the cars are built, you know, you're racing on an aero platform and then you have the the, 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 the way the tires are, uh, the grip and the tires, you know. And I'm not just talking in NASCAR. I mean across all forms of racing yeah. because Indy cars yeah. handle a lot better now well, than they did back tech, then. Sprint look, cars too. Your phone works better than it worked back then. <laughs> I mean, technology is technology, right? Yeah. I mean, that's just the, the uh, you know just how it works. I mean, things get better. We don't, you know, things don't get worse, mm-hmm. right? Things get better. We build better things, and so. Uh, but again, you know, and until the car can be held wide open all the time there's always room for whatever you know if it's on a on a one mile track or a three-quarter mile track or a mile and a half track if 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 you have to lift you have to drive mm-hmm. right if you have to lift you have to drive it so whatever the discipline is that's what comes in now is aero and all the platforms that they work on now 
part of it. It is. Mm-hmm. But you still have to drive the car. Mm-hmm. You have to there there's a seat of the pants feel. It's all there. That never that part never changes. Still four tires, still a steering wheel, still a gas and a brake, right? You still have to shift, maybe maybe a little bit different, but it's still the mechanics are the same of it. Mm-hmm. The disciplines change of you know, the mechanical disciplines change of what it is. Certain eras created better racing, I think, because the cars were more raw, you know, and there was fast cars and slow cars. And Which eras? I would say more like in the uh, 80s, 90s were better eras of racing. I mean, you say that, and then, then you have very close races now, but it just seemed, and again, we were different. It just seemed different then to me. You know, now you still, I mean, you really have good racing. I mean, the races, I got to tell you. It's great this year. I'm a huge fan of the of, of this next-gen car. Mm-hmm. I think it was I think it was uh, overdue to have a car like this because the technology has gotten out of hand and all the the what it what it takes to run the cars have gotten out of hand and the engineering where you're engineering a part to be the part that it's supposed to do mechanically and become a aero advantage. I mean, all this stuff was just out of hand. Right, the bodies, the way but they were massaging them. The whole were, thing when, is just... When I was in the K&N mm-hmm. and I heard of cars going to the wind tunnel, mm-hmm. I was like, are you serious? Yeah. No, well, you have short track cars that are doing that now. It's just, all of that stuff is, 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 I don't know, it just takes um, some of the rawness out of racing and when, when racing was a bit, not too raw because then it wasn't, wasn't that great and you had cars winning by five laps and all that stuff. But when it had, you know, loose parameters rather than such tight parameters that they have now but the problem is you can't have loose parameters because you have so much engineering and technology that they would exploit all that Mm -hmm. so i think what nascar did is exactly the right thing i think they built the right car i think they did it the right way i think they had the you know the oems involved in it and the and, and the manufacturers helped build this car and design it and and look at the racing i mean you've had look at a team like Trackhouse. You know, right. which was formerly Ganassi, is now one of the top teams. And, you know, you got to give Justin Marks and all those guys credit for what they've done. And look at Richard Childress. You've got, you know, they've got a couple of wins. You know, you've taken teams that were, you would say, mid-level, and now they're contenders. Mm-hmm. I love that. Do you, you know? still go to cup races? I don't, not so much. No? Uh, but I really? watch them all. Well, I'm, at a, I'm, I'm always at a short track. Okay. You know yeah. what I mean? I mean, like, I just... But I do. I stay up on cup racing. I have a lot of friends in cup racing. Um, I watch a lot of it. But there, it, there's just not a lot of need for me to go. Not where my head. My head is in this development and working with these with these young drivers and parents. Um, I really, I, you know, I like to focus on what I do, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, I want to be good at what I do. I can still be a fan of of cup racing, which I am, mm-hmm. um, and I still watch it, and I still, you know, listen to the end car and radio and all that stuff. And so I know what's going on. I don't have to be there to understand what's happening. When a driver gets to the, the, the truck series or the Xfinity mm-hmm. series or, or, or the cup series, um, is, does it, do, do they reach a point where they rise so high? It's like, okay, you're not with me anymore. Yeah. Like, yeah. How high do they go before well, you are no longer working with them? Uh, usually what I'll do is I'll hand them off to different agencies 
uh, is what I did in the past. And so now I'm, 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 I'm more with Chevrolet. So now it'll just be like, well, we get them to a certain point and then we'll decide what we do with them team wise, um, agency wise and all that type of thing. So, um, usually truck level would mm-hmm. be the level that I would kind of say, okay, we've kind of got you on the path you need to be going. And then I'll start concentrating on the next wave that comes, you know what I mean? So that, that, that type of thing. So, um, but I always stay in contact with even, you know, I worked really, I mean, I worked with Sam Mayer since he was 11 years old. Wow. So I, I'm very close with Sam and his dad and uh, still stay close contact with him and, and watch every move that he makes. And I'll give my two cents if I see something or whatever. But you know what? They, they, it's time for them to figure it out now. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, we've laid all the, the blocks and we've built the foundation underneath you. It's time for you to go do it. Same with Sheldon Creed, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, I started working with him. He was 15 years old and an off-road racer, mm-hmm. you know. And, you know, now he's won an ARCA championship, truck championship, and now he's in, in um, Xfinity. Not had a great year, but getting better. Mm-hmm. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I stay in contact with all of them. Even Zane, he's, on, he's with another manufacturer now. But, uh, you know, I still watch him because I put a lot of effort into him. Mm-hmm. And he's doing great. Right. You know, he's doing phenomenal. So, you know, I get a lot of pride out of, of watching these kids do what they do and do their thing i know you you can't tell us who you're looking at mm-hmm. as far as possible prospects but are there any racetracks in the country that you kind of look at or give your attention to because that's where some talent's coming from uh anything like that well you know uh we did we obviously did a deal with luke finhouse so i did i, I do watch the wisconsin racing midwest uh, uh late model racing i mean i watch it all i watch the, I, I, I mean I, I, it's not like i go to them but i follow them you know, you try to watch all the uh, short track racing in this area. I mean, I'm at a lot of them. The, I feel like I'm a huge fan of the Cars Tour and what Jack McNally's doing. Um, the, the the Cars Tour late model stock is as good of short track racing as there is. Mm-hmm. It's at least 15 to 20 deep mm-hmm. of, of cars that you could say could win, the, win that race that particular night. And... To me, that's where the kids really learn how to race is in that type of environment. So I'm a huge fan of that. They've got the they have the uh, uh, cars tour pro late model that's just kind of getting started. Uh, that's got a ways to go, but it has potential. Mm-hmm. That formula car is a good car, and it's a good it's a good car for younger drivers to learn in. Um, not a lot of power, good a lot of grip. So I'm a fan of that. Uh, I mean, listen, I, I follow all the open wheel stuff I can. I follow modifieds. You know, if we see somebody that we think might be a, a player, then we're gonna we're gonna follow them and anyone, we're gonna talk to them. Anyone from the modifieds catching your eye? Not at the not at the moment. Yeah. But uh, hey, you got to watch the eleven year old kid that won two races last week, right? I mean, oh my god! I mean, he's eleven years old. Yeah. I mean, you, I mean, you have to look. He well, I I I know him and his dad. Yeah. You know, I'm friendly with them because the, you know, my my nephew raced quarter midgets yeah. with them, so they kind of follow each other's careers. But right. Yeah. Right. What he did for the past two nights at North Wilkesboro, incredible, winning against all those cars. I mean, it's is, unreal. Right. Yeah. I mean, so I mean, so you got to watch. I'm I'm, I'm I'm you know I'm a huge uh, Matt Hirschman fan. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I've watched him forever, and I'm. But is he too old? He's too old. Yeah. Okay. But but I'm, I still be a fan. Do you have an age cap? I mean, for what I'm doing now, it's it's very young. Really? Teenage. So under 20 is your age yeah, cap. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, okay, but what not to parents? say Not to say that you wouldn't help somebody if, if they were the right guy. To, I mean, 
But I'm just saying as far as looking for junior drivers, mm-hmm. you know, we're kind of in the teen teenage years. Now, are there any parents that are sending you, like, highlight reels of their kids saying, hey, please take my kid or please coach uh, my kid? Oh, no. I mean, I do get calls like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do help people outside of uh, the Chevrolet thing. If, if somebody needs my help, I'm going to help them. Okay. I mean, I, I just think it's you have to do that for the sport. I just think that as much as a sport has given me, I have to give back. I have to, if people call me, I, I mean, I always try to help them. I don't, if I can't be, you know, I, I try to give them as much help as I can. Let's mm-hmm. put it that way. I try to do the best I can to help them. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's the honorable thing. Yeah. So let's switch gears a little bit and uh, let's talk about uh, some of the older stuff from back in the days, mm-hmm. the, the 80s, the, mm-hmm. the 70s. Uh, like, what are some of your favorite memories or stories from different well, wins or for, just times with, you know, yeah. having your own racing or having uh, so your, with dad, my, your dad's well, racing get, team? You know, I, I can just remember being in school, being in like junior high, was, this would have been right around like 1979, right? I just could not wait for the weekend. I just could not wait to get on that airplane. My dad had his own plane and to, and to be at the racetrack all weekend. I just couldn't, I, I, that, that's the first feeling. So Friday after school at out, you were on the plane going somewhere. Yeah. Usually probably Saturday morning. Usually. Yeah. Saturday morning we would, you know, we'd fly to Charlotte or we'd fly to North Wilkesboro. We'd fly to Texas or we'd fly to Michigan or wherever, but I just couldn't wait to be there for the weekend. You know, I just, I loved every minute of it as a kid. Every, you know, and, and, and what was cool for me was I was so into it um, that I had to have my kind of my face in every conversation. You know, if my dad had a conversation with Waddell Wilson and Buddy Baker, I had to listen to it. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I was that engaged in it. So that's like my earliest memory. And then always every day, I just remember, you know, I'd go to my dad's office and we would just talk about racing. And then even at night, you know, when I was 13, 14 years old, like I, I, I didn't want to go hang out with my friends. I wanted to talk to my dad. Mm-hmm. I wanted to talk about racing. That's all I wanted to talk about. And, it, and you know what's really funny is, you know, I'm in my 50s now, right? And I still have that same passion as I did when I was 14. Like it's every day I want to talk about racing. I want to be around racing. That's all I want to do. Right. And uh, I don't know what that is. That's an obsession. Uh, if it's unhealthy, I, I don't know. But that's my life. And I was that way then. And so I'm leading up to kind of the biggest moment. So the biggest moment was, um, you know, we ran uh, Lenny Pond in 78. I, I went to a few of those races. I was only like 12, 13 at that, that year. You won with Lenny Pond at Talladega. At Talladega, 1978. That was our first win. But we ran Lenny the whole year, right? Or most of the year, not maybe not all the races. And um, we won the, the race with him, and I actually wasn't there for that in Talladega. Um, I can't remember what, what I had going on, but I didn't go to that, and I was, like, devastated. Um, <laughs> I just say. didn't think we'd win because we'd had an average year, and Lenny was a really good guy, and he was actually a really good short track driver. You know, he's from Richmond area, and he was great at Richmond, and he's good at Martinsville, and, you know, really, really good short track driver, good at North Wilkesboro. But he just really wasn't the driver for the team that we had. He just really wasn't the right guy for that team. Mm-hmm. But I, So I went to a few of those. But then we got Buddy Baker the next year, and uh, that's when we had the Grey Ghost, you know, the first oh, year yeah, with the Grey Ghost. Oh, yeah, the Teflon Go- car. Right? Well, no, yeah. not that one. That, the first thing was Spectra, Spectra that's Oil. It. That's where the paint scheme came from. 
was Spectra oil. It was like a uh, kind of like a uh, first synthetic oil or one of the first synthetic oils. Okay. You know, say the first one, first one I knew of. And um, so uh, so we went to Daytona with Baker, and we ended up winning the inaugural Bush Clash. Right. Um, that was a big deal. Is that you know? the Le Mans car? No, no. So oh. Oldsmobile. Oldsmobile. Yeah, Oz- yeah, the Le Mans didn't come till '81. Okay. So uh, we won the first Bush Clash. So that was a you know, big deal. At that time, it was 1979, so it was 50 miles for 50,000. Big deal then. Huge money. Huge money. Yeah. For a 20-lap race. Right, for back then. 50 grand. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of money, 1979. <laughs> so, so was your dad like one of the, you, you said that he ran, he, he chased the big races. They raced the run, big ones. Did they also, they obviously went for the big money races too. Well, they were all, I mean, that was all the same. You know, so it was just, at that year, I think with Baker, 1979, we ran like, 22 races of the of the 29 they ran or something we we wouldn't go to north wilkesboro and we did go to martinsville because we actually won it that year 1979 but we just kind of went to the big races and that was it you know and that was you know he ended up winning uh we won that race and we ended up having electrical issues in the 500 that was the race where they had the spin in the fight with uh right. kale and donnie mm-hmm. we should have won that race we had the by far the fastest car but we had an ignition problem and um we just, we were on the pole and uh but anyway that year we won atlanta um and we won michigan and we won martinsville i think three wins uh, in a, in a it, season for a part-time team part-time is team. not bad yeah, yeah yeah and and the and the um uh bush clash yeah won that as well so uh so that that was it but the biggest moment for me was the 1980 daytona 500 i was uh 14 years old and so it's funny so i was uh like the gas runner right so you know they they dumped the gas in the car and so you'd have to take the uh the cans back to unical fill them up and you had to get the exact number of how much it took so i'd take that back to waddell and he would and he would uh figure the fuel mileage Mm -hmm. so i'll never forget um we we had the dominant car i mean the thing was so fast that was that was the gray ghost and um i'll never forget this feeling i can feel it like it happened today uh after the last stop i went back to the uh hauler we had to kind of first customize hauler it was nice and i just remember in the hauler and i was like curled up vibrating just nervous yeah nervous shaking just like i I can't believe we're going to win the daytona 500 i cannot (laughs) i know something's going to happen and this was like the last you know bit of the race and we'd led the whole race the whole day oh you guys are the dominant dominant car i led 140 something laps right of the race you know and and it was just like the last and i'm like in the i'm like in the hall or just like 14 years old you know just like i just i just remember that feeling of like you know, we, we got to win this race, you know? And, um, so we did, we won the race. Right. And then the next feeling that I had was, you know, we did the victory lane thing and took the pictures. And so they're, you know, everything's quiet down, you know, and everybody's left and they're pushing the car from victory lane to tech. Right. And I'm holding the trophy. I'm walking next to the car, holding the Daytona Five. Holding the Daytona Five. Wow, so I was cool. 14 years old. I was 14 years old. 
That was 1980. So that's how long I've been. So if you want to say a memory for me, like the memory of, of, of racing, like, I don't know if it really gets any better than that. That may be the euphoric moment of the nervousness, the feeling of just like, I can't take it. You know, I mean, we're just, we're just a family from Kentucky that loves racing and, you know, been, been involved in it off and on at that point for, 20 years at that point it's a surreal moment that we're going to win the daytona 500 and that was my dad's goal was like you know i want to win daytona daytona is it Mm -hmm. that's what and he ended up winning it three times should have and had a shot to win it six times and um they won it three three times mm -hmm. once uh baker baker kale back to back with kale back to back with kale 83 84 oh wait so um so Kale's flip was when your dad in your dad's car, yes, right? It was, yeah. That was that. Uh, you you want a funny story? Okay, so, funny story. So it's nineteen eighty three. So you know Waddell, I mean honestly, a master, a a, a mechanical master. Waddell Wilson, mm-hmm. mechanical master. I mean, from building engines to how the bodies were on the cars and just understanding air and horsepower and you know at that time you know people didn't know all this stuff and he understood how to the windshield need to be angled to get the right cow pressure to create the most vacuum and you know people just didn't know that then you know there weren't there wasn't engineering they were those guys were artists they they were artists that's exactly right so it's amazing what he had done the year before he he with benny parsons we had benny parsons 1982 and he he was the first car uh to uh with with Benny driving for my dad, 1982, the 28 car at Talladega went 200 miles an hour in qualifying. Mm-hmm. First car to officially go 200 in qualifying. Now, Buddy Baker went 200 like 10 years before in a that. Test. In a test. But Benny was the first car to officially qualify over 200. Right. So nobody had run 200 at Daytona. So this was the next February. So we went, it's kind of kind of two surreal moments. So we had a test in Daytona in January of 83. And we had that Le Mans, Pontiac Le Mans, and then we had this brand new Chevy uh, SS with the nose, you know, the new nose. So Kale wanted to test both cars. But he wanted to feel the car in a draft, right? So we had to have another driver. So my dad and Kale and everyone were, were really good friends with A.J. Foyt. So we had AJ come down and test, you know, mind you, these are private tests again, right? Just us. Right, at Daytona. At Daytona, okay. right? So I'll never forget this day, ever. And it's like that 1980 thing. So it's 1983, January 1983. I'm 17, senior in high school. And so when they go draft, I told my dad, I said, I want to drive around and watch from the front, you know, so I can see the whole track. Never forget this. So, you know, there's nobody there. So I drive all the way around to the back of the grandstand, and I walk through the grandstand, and I get in the flag stand. And I'm like, this is the first time Kale had ever tested for us, and AJ had never, you know, done anything for us. And I'm like, we've got Kale Yarborough and A.J. Foyt testing our cars today. And there, I'm, I'm in the flag stand. I wish I had a camera, you know, something to right. document it. I'm in the flag stand watching those two guys draft 
our cars in the at Daytona in a test. I was just like, I'll never forget this day. Wow. Like that's just when it comes to racing. You know, at that point, you know, AJ had won four Indianapolis 500, and Kale had won three championships, and all that stuff. I mean, all that stuff was fresh. Mm-hmm. You know, they were the you know they were the superstars were of that era, right? Mm-hmm. And so what was funny was Kale decided to run the the, the the Chevrolet Monte Carlo over the Pontiac Le Mans. And AJ goes, hey, Harry, you let me drive that Le Mans, I'll win the race. You know what I mean? He's, this thing will fly. AJ said that. He said that because he was in the Le Mans. Right. And uh, Kale drove both of them, and then AJ went in the Le Mans and drafted with him. But after Kale drove the, the Chevy, he said, I want to race the Chevy. So that's what we did. So – the next story. So we're really fast in practice. We go out to qualify. And so at Daytona, 45 flat is 200 miles an hour. Okay. 45.00 is exactly 200 miles an hour on a two-and-a-half-mile racetrack. Okay. okay. So I know the number, right? I know I know what we got to run. So so we're at, you know, we're at the start-finish line. He takes off, leaves comes by gets the green and i've got my stopwatch this is qualifying or qualifying qualifying Qualifying. this is qualifying Mm -hmm. for the 500 okay so i've got my stopwatch and i'm right at the line right and it's like anything under 45 flat is 200 and 200 was a big deal then right Mm -hmm. nobody'd ever run 200 at daytona so he comes by boom i push you know i'm pushing the watch i mean everybody else is timing as well right but it's like i'm gonna see exactly what he runs doing exactly on the line i mean you know they've got the timing and scoring but it's not like it is today right Mm -hmm. so comes around and i'm looking right at the line boom i hit the watch never forget it said four four seven nine now i don't know what he officially ran i don't know the exact time but i know what i had Mm -hmm. and i know at that moment i didn't miss it by two tenths we broke 200 miles an hour right right okay so we're going crazy right <laughs> high fives <laughs> chest bumps right we're going nuts crazy <laughs> right just jumping up and down and you know hugging each other and guess what he never came back it's like all that joy went to like and then we hear uh, you know the fans are like uh, the car's we couldn't see it because we're on pit road. Right. So there was no video. There was no nothing. He just gets he just gets loose. The front windshield comes out of it after it gets loose. Oh, okay. Yeah, and then the then it just I mean the the spoilers laid back like that. I'm like the the rear spoilers like that. Okay. He just got loose. It was gusty. It was windy. I mean, he just lost it. <laughs> He's just on the edge. He's just on the edge. And they said they said from um, if you would time turn three to turn three. Before he started getting loose, it was 203 miles an hour. So right. he would have, if he would have completed that lap, he would have been on the pole by five miles an hour. Second place was 198. Who was second? Do you remember? Uh, Ricky Rudd, which he ended up getting the pole. Okay. Because we had to withdraw the car because it was destroyed. Mm-hmm. So we go back and get, uh, the, which just has a whole big, people think it's a show car that was setting at a Hardee's, which is not true. We go back to the shop and get the Pontiac, right, and bring it back down, prep it, run it in the qualifying race, finishes third in the qualifying race, run the 500, and he wins the 500 in the Pontiac. And he did a slingshot on Buddy Baker on the last lap 
Yeah. Kel Yarborough. That I, sl- that I remember. Slingshot, and he won the 500 in, in, in the backup car. You guys had, had – you'd run that – the 28 car. You'd won mm-hmm. back-to-back in it. Um, mm-hmm. Was it something that you had guys had figured out because you had – Waddell Wilson working on the car. You also had Robert Yates. Well, like Yates came much later. Oh, he did. He came later, yeah. So Waddell, Waddell uh, from 79 through 86, Waddell was the crew chief and engine builder and team manager, basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, he ran the whole show. Um, he was in charge of everything at the shop. And um, so in 1986, Kale left and Waddell left to go work with Daryl Waltrip at Hendrick. That's what they called the dream team back in 1987. Waddell and Daryl. Daryl okay. at Hendrick. Okay. That number 17 Tide, mm-hmm. Tide car. Right. And so uh, when Waddell left, my dad hired Robert Yates. And that was at the very end of 86. So he did actually did a couple of races with Kale in 86. And then in 87, you know, end of 86, we hired Davey and did the whole Texaco Haviland thing. And, gotcha. and, that, and then we owned the car from 80. Uh, 86 i'm sorry 87 when it was texaco we uh when davy drove 87 88 and then at the end of 88 my dad sold the team to robert yates and that's how robert yates racing became it i mean it was renair racing and it just turned into robert yates racing right same shop same people same everything my dad just sold him the team okay my dad was in some financial issues in the coal business up in kentucky so he wanted to make sure that the team he just wanted to make sure that robert and davy continued on so he did everything he could to make sure that that continued, and it did. It was it, it, it was, was amazing. Yeah, they they made such an incredible combination. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, but the the guys that you had had associated with you over the years. I mean, some of the moments that you guys were involved in, unreal. Because even you guys were even involved in Richard Petty's two hundredth win. Well, I'd, uh, I'd, I'd, I'd yeah, I'd like is that to, a race you want back? Uh, I'd like to have it back. <laughs> yeah. Um, All right, come yeah. on, tell us the story about well, that because there's that famous picture yeah. of Kale uh, so and Richard. The way the race, if and you could, this race is on YouTube. You, anybody can watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Kale was kind of setting him up for a, a, a slingshot move on the last lap, and uh, a caution came out with like two to go, and so he had to make the move where he didn't really want to make the move, and he went into three too hard and got loose, and then Richard. You know, Richard got underneath him. Crisscross. Chris, yeah, kind of, you know, cross back. And uh, um, they just kind of raced to the line, and Richard beat him to the line, you know, just by, you know, what that much. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it was a big day because I never forget, I was probably about 18, 19 at the time, and we were going to get to meet President Reagan. Right. My dad was so upset. We said, oh, we're going home. We're not going to the picnic. They called it a picnic. They had Kentucky Fried Chicken and all kinds of KFC and all stuff, and and uh, and for the president, and um, I do regret that. I mean, you know, you win some, you lose some. To be a part of Richard's 200th win, it was his last win. You know, all that's a all that's a big deal. You know, well, the other part of it too is what people don't realize is there's that iconic picture with Richard and Air Force One in the background, mm-hmm. but there's also another shot with Kale with and Kale. Air Force yeah, One. Yeah, I have it in my house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have it in my house. Yeah, I <laughs> do. People don't realize. Yeah, is, you yeah. Know, there's more than one car with that photo with Absolutely. Air Force One. Yeah, yeah. That is so cool. Yeah, it's really cool to be a part of that and get to you know I got to live that. I mean, that was my childhood basically. My you know my teen years and um, it's so much fun. I mean, I wouldn't change one day of it. It was just thank the good lord every day that i get to you know have those memories and then i get to do what i get to do today to you know so it's it's just incredible honestly it's so much fun and 
so many great memories with the 28 car and all the all the cool people that worked there and just just so much fun you know i could see it in in your face you have mm-hmm. that genuine love mm-hmm. for it but uh you know you've got millions of stories and i we could probably sit here for hours mm-hmm. um i always ask this of every guest would you come back again because we Anytime. always love to have a part two we always yeah. love hearing more of those stories from mm-hmm. over the years and we really want to thank you for coming in uh you know what you've done in the sport is it been incredible and your longevity in the sport mm-hmm. has just been amazing as well mm-hmm. um thank you for coming in today we definitely appreciate it we'd love to have you back anytime i've really enjoyed it thank you lauren Rainier joins us on the Derek pernasiglio show I want to thank you all for tuning in and like always we'll see you the next time bye <laughs>